As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, Resolvers. The holidays are coming, and that means gift giving. We have a bunch of fabulous new merch over at ResolvedMysteriesPodcast.com slash merch. There are shirts and totes and mugs and other gifty goodies. We also now have a sponsor page, which has some great gift ideas like Unidragon puzzles and Audible subscriptions. And there are some other unique gift opportunities for fans of RM, like sending your honey some love on our Resolved Mysteries billboard or signing them up for our Patreon. So head over to ResolvedMysteriesPodcast.com and click on Advertising and Support for more information. This podcast contains adult language and stories of true crime. If you don't like laughing, crying, or being horrified at the actions of other humans, this podcast is not for you. And welcome to Season 4, Episode 14 of Resolved Mysteries. This is the show where we rewatch, recap, and give you the latest updates to the cases featured on the show, Unsolved Mysteries. I'm Allison. I'm Eliza. And I'm Carlin. And welcome to the show. As most of you know, for every review that we receive, we donate a dollar to a different organization. And this month's organization is called Frosted Faces. Oh my gosh. And we got an email from our wonderful friend, Sean, not Sharon, and the subject line was heartbroken. And Sean said, hey, wonderful ladies, I'm a Patreon member, and I wanted to suggest the Frosted Faces Foundation as a charity. With a very heavy heart, I had to say goodbye to Dakota on September 3rd. Frosted Faces is a group that finds homes for elderly dogs. Because, well, I was going to say, fuck those adorable puppies, but instead I'll say, elderly dogs need love too. Mm. Anyway, for Dakota, even the employee of the month from Beyond the Grave, that's my suggestion. Dakota was obviously Sean's beloved pup. Mm. 
Anytime Sean would write to us, she would always talk about how Dakota was her employee of the month because Sean mm-hmm. works from home. Oh, so heartbreaking. Yeah. So, Sean, we're sending you our love. And listeners, if you want to leave us a review for this month, we are going to donate a dollar for every review that we receive to Frosted Faces in honor of Dakota and Sean. Oh, I love it. I'm so sorry, Sean. Yeah. I know. So heartbreaking. So if you have a nonprofit or a charity that you'd like to donate to, you can find us on patreon.com slash mysteries. And you'll also get access to ad-free episodes, two additional episodes a month, early access to listener short stacks, along with goodies in the mail. And speaking of patrons, Eliza or Carlin, do you want to shout out some new patrons that joined us? I can. And yeah, if you are a Patreon member, then you can suggest charities to donate to through there. And we'll do that. And you're also donating to us. <laughs> you're donating to, yeah, that's true. <laughs> to <laughs> so our charity. You're, you're donating to our nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very much for profit. Not a lot of profit, though. <laughs> uh, thank you to Rich S., Kaliki, C.R., Daniel H., Jojo, Lance M., Natasha C., and Iris G. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. All right, sisters, what are we covering this episode? This is a goodie, It's y'all. good. It's oh my good. Gosh. It is good. I have a final appeal case. We don't get a lot of those segments, and it's the story of Larry Race. I had to... Hold my hands back from Googling about this one, honey. Yes, oh, I know. I'm glad you did. I mean, this is like the spirit of our show. This is how our show started. Like, I yes. had to hold back. It's a good yes. one. Yes. And then mine is an unexplained death about Jeannie Tovery. And then I wrap it up with a lost loves of Helen Rose. Mm. All right. All right, girls. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, the final appeal for this husband, Larry Race. Well, he has to appeal, and it's his final chance. It's a rare seggy type. I think this is only our second or third. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stack opens by telling us some lake facts. We love lake facts. (laughs) We love any geographical facts, for sure. Mm -hmm. We do love an outdoor stack. Mm -hmm. Specifically about one of the Great Lakes, Lake Superior. Lake Superior is extremely cold all year round, which is an important thing to keep in mind. Okay. Stag tells us that many have drowned there, but a woman whose name was Debbie Race was found on the shore with her life jacket on, not having died of drowning, but dying of hypothermia. Mm-mm. Her husband, Larry, was convicted of her murder, charged with plotting for her to freeze to death on the lake. After eight years in prison and five unsuccessful appeal attempts, <laughs> Larry Race is appealing his case for the final time. This part is crazy to me throughout the whole thing. Even Debbie Race's parents don't believe that Larry could have hurt their daughter. Yes. Yeah. I noted that because that's rare as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Stack lays all of this out ahead of time. And we will obviously get into all of this in more detail. But Stack's got to lay the groundwork for what's happening with Mm -hmm. old Larry before we see his face as a talking head in this segment. Which is always a spooky if he did it. (laughs) 
(laughs) Wouldn't you say it's spooky? So part of the reason that the jury originally convicted Larry was because this man had many extramarital affairs. Mm. Which doesn't look good for your character. And Debbie knew about these affairs. Larry then tells us in his first interview that he is innocent of murder but guilty of adultery. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Larry, for those words. (laughs) This guy. Ugh. Okay. (laughs) Larry and Debbie Race, along with their two daughters and son, lived in Hoyt Lakes, Minnesota, 75 miles from Lake Superior. Their marriage was troubled because Larry liked to put his penis where it shouldn't be. (laughs) A truly constant adulterous behavior. Constant. Oh, wow. Throughout their entire marriage. But, as they all do, by 1982, he vowed to try again with their relationship. Um, So on May 11th, 1982, which was their 14th wedding anniversary, they went out to celebrate. They had dinner at a Lakeview restaurant and took their boat, the Jenny Lee, out onto Lake Superior. After it became dark, they drifted offshore, looking at the city lights. And Larry says, quote, It felt like things were starting over again, like we had a renewed spirit. I wanted to stop what I was doing, and I was thinking, maybe this is a chance. I have a wonderful woman here. There's nothing wrong with her. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I fucking hated everything he said in this part. Disgusting. And I'm so sure she was sitting there thinking, wow, these sparkly lights are really changing everything for me. I, this is it. We're in love again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, according to Larry, at around 9 p.m. on their romantic boat ride, Debbie noticed that the boat was taking on water and instantly began to panic. And this one is, this segment's interesting because there are no other witnesses. So everything that, you have to remember when you're watching it, everything that the reenactors are doing is based on what Larry is saying. Mm -hmm. Yes. Only. Good point. You're watching so much thinking, oh, this is really what happened. We have no idea what really happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, and the reenactment is long and drawn out, and it's these two people out on this boat in the dark. Like, they really filmed this for real and out there. That woman is. Oh, whew, she's acting. <laughs> she sure is. <laughs> she's doing it. <laughs> So Larry says that Debbie immediately began to panic, and then he mentions that the Jenny Lee had nearly sunk the previous summer. So it's like she had good reason to panic, I suppose. Yeah. Didn't she? Yeah. So when Larry took off the engine cover, he noticed water spraying out from it, and they were able to shut it off. And the leaking eventually stopped, and everything seemed to be working fine again. But then Debbie walked over and tried to start the engine because Larry had told her to cut the engine while they tried to get the leak fixed. They fixed the leak. She walks over and tries to start the engine and it won't turn over. So Larry says, let me get in there. And he tries to start it and it won't start. So then at this simultaneously, they notice the boat's not starting and it's starting to sink again. Mm. And Debbie told Larry that she wanted to get off. I'll just walk. (laughs) Yeah. Get me out of here. So again, this is all what Larry's saying. Larry says that they had two life rafts on board, and they tried to blow up the first one, but they noticed that there were holes in it, and it wasn't blowing up, so they tossed it off to the side. 
Thankfully, they had a second one, so they filled that one up, and it did hold air. So Larry says that even though there were two man rafts, they were two man rafts, only one person could fit, which I don't understand. <laughs> well, oh, man, there's so many parallels between this and my segment for the next yes, episode. Yes, I It's know. fucking crazy. Yes. But I listened to another podcast talking about that very same thing. Like, well, what did they say? Did they say two people could fit if they had to without sinking I it? think that's kind of what it is. Like, um, they were comparing it to, like, tents, which yeah, we all gonna know. Yeah, I was going to say. Yes. Is it like, like a tent? A tent that says it yes. sleeps four really sleeps yes. two. Yeah. Okay. And so it's kind of the same with rafts like that, where if it says it's a four-person, it really comfortably fe- seats two. But in this case, they don't have to be comfortable. They need to live. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So Debbie put her purse and other valuables in a bag and placed that in the raft along with a scuba tank. And then Larry had his scuba gear on board because he's like an avid swimmer and scuba diver, um, which is convenient, isn't it? (laughs) And he told Debbie that he would drag her and the life raft to shore with him because he was a stronger swimmer than her. And um, he had had to do that the summer before when the Jenny Lee almost sank with his daughters in the life raft. Mm. And he says, I knew I had to push her to shore, and I knew I could. I was strong enough. She said the same thing. She said, Larry, you're strong enough. You can do it. Yeah. I pushed and pushed, and I was making it. I was okay, but I started getting cold. She was terrified, and at that time, I knew I couldn't get in the raft. And so then the reenactment shows him in the water saying, my hands are getting cold. I need to get in. And she is flipping out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she she is, says, no. No. No, you will not. She's you, like, you, you best keep it. swimming. Yeah. <laughs> she will not allow it. Again, we have no idea what really happened. Would she really say that? Exactly. It's like Jack and Rose. Yes. One, oh, my gosh. Yes. There's so many parallels between this segment and my next one. And so he says, and I thought that, you know, I would die. And at that time, I made a poor judgment. Looked off to the right, and there was lights coming. This part, you guys. I said, I'll go for help. The lights were closer than swimming to shore. Debbie was going that way towards the shore. I was hoping the opposite way for help. One of us were going to get help. One of us were going to get to shore. Debbie was going to get to shore for help, or I was going to get to a boat for help. Okay, but Debbie also doesn't have any paddles. Yeah. No. Debbie's just floating. She's just floating. And freaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freaking and floating. So he had a dry suit on, but he said he thought he was going to die if he didn't get in the boat with Debbie. <laughs> That's what I was confused about. I was like, you know no. these waters and you have this suit for these waters, right? Mm-hmm. What's happening here? I later found a Medium article that dove into court documents and found this, so I'm just going to interject it here. Okay. Since 1976, Larry had been an avid boater and scuba diver. In one of the courses he completed, the subject of hypothermia was thoroughly covered. Court documents say that over the years, he had spent a substantial amount of time and money on his hobby and went diving in Lake Superior approximately 40 times a year. A year? That is like Whoa. every other – that's more than twice a month. Yeah. Wow. Not only – is that true? 
Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's true. <laughs> I'm like I'm like the math meme lady. I'm like Claire Danes. I'm like, what's Claire Danes? <laughs> Not only did this mean he was an excellent diver and had extensive knowledge about, quote, immersion hypothermia, but he also purchased expensive equipment that allowed him to dive for shipwrecks on the bottom of the lake. So this guy is wearing this dry suit, which is way better than a wetsuit. Um, like people who surf on the Oregon coast often have dry suits, not mm-hmm. wetsuits. Oh. That's what I thought of too. So he's been in the water five minutes and he tells her he's going to die because his hands are cold. Not his whole body. He says his hands are cold. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I would say the same thing if my hands were cold. <laughs> You're going to die if just your hands are he cold. He sounds like my toddler. <laughs> yes. So included among his equipment was a dry suit, which, like I said, is better than a wetsuit. And for a diver to stay in cold water for extended lengths of time, a dry suit is considered a necessity. A diver in a dry suit can stay in 37-degree Fahrenheit water almost indefinitely without developing hypothermia. Oh That's God. part of the Whoa. court records. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I just wondered because I thought of the same thing, like surfers in Oregon. I'm like, it's fucking cold, and they are fine wearing a wetsuit. Yes. So. Yes. But it's a dry suit. This is a dry suit. It's even better. Whoa. It's even better. Then remember how he said he made a a bit of a mistake, just a tiny little error? Uh Well, that error was that he noticed lights from a nearby boat, and he began to swim towards it. And then when he got there, it was his own fucking boat that they had tried to escape. (laughs) Fucking Muppet. So he's left. This is all his thing. Who knows what actually happened? He has left Debbie out there alone. She has no lights or anything. She cannot be found again. She's alone, drifting in this raft, apparently, according to him. He swims towards lights, which he realizes is his own boat. He climbs in, and guess what? What? The engine starts. No. That is just such a stroke of luck. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that so great for him? (laughs) And then, don't worry, he went to search for Debbie right away. But he was unsuccessful. And he returned to shore in his boat that miraculously started and notified the Coast Guard, who also searched for her unsuccessfully. The next afternoon, this poor teenager Mm. is walking along the shore Mm. and discovers her body. Again, she had died from hypothermia, not from drowning, because she was wearing her life vest. So, John DeSanto prosecuted Larry and Debbie's murder is a bit of a... Mm, he's got a reputation in the city. Okay. And you can kind of tell it in his attitude in his talking head interview, but he, I don't hate what he says. A lot of people on sitcoms online don't really like him, but he Mm. says, quote, this is not an appropriate case for unsolved mysteries. It simply is not an unsolved mystery. I love that. What are you guys doing here? Which, how many times have we said that? Yeah. He's like, go find the Yeti, man. Do you know what this is called? This show is called. Oh my God, I loved it. John DeSanto believes that Larry murdered Debbie and his motive was that he wanted out of the marriage. He wanted her life insurance money, as they often do. Mm-hmm. But he produced what many consider only circumstantial evidence at the trial that showed that Larry had the opportunity, means, and motive to kill her. He claimed that Larry had apparently wanted out of his unhappy marriage, which he, of course, was using those 
extramarital affairs to prove that. Mm-hmm. He also claimed that Larry didn't like Debbie's weight, housekeeping, or spending habits. He noted that Larry had a $108,000 life insurance policy on her that was purchased months prior to her death. But Larry's attorneys claimed that she is the one who had insisted on getting the insurance policy. So the prosecution claimed that Larry had concocted the engine trouble on the boat as a way to get her off of it. And again, we don't know if the boat even had engine trouble. Mm -hmm. We don't know if he just hit her over the head with an oar and pushed her off the boat, man. We don't know anything. Yes. Yeah. But that's what the prosecution is claiming going off of Larry's story. After the trial, the boat was sold and an independent mechanic examined the starter and stated that it was worn and that the problem could have caused intermittent starting failure. But it doesn't mean that the boat was taking on all that water, like he says. Right. However, the prosecution noted that Larry and his lawyers could not, did not, and could not prove that was a problem back in 1982 when the trial was happening. So... Also, Larry claimed that there were two rafts on board the boat that night, but the prosecuting attorney states that there was, in reality, only one. Larry's diving companions and friends who had all been on the boat at the trial said that they had never seen him with more than one on the Jenny Lee. The search and rescue also stated that they would have found the other one during their search floating on the water. No doubt about it. Why did he lie and even make up the first boat? I don't understand how that gives him credibility. Go ahead. Well, I think there had to be a reason that she ended up... Well, no. Didn't they say something about this? There was a reason. Well... Because there needed to be a reason they were... That only she was in one boat. And that her boat sank. Well, it's weird. To me, there doesn't need to be a reason for it. So what what is said is, a, remember how they talk about a few days before, for whatever reason, Larry gets his boat checked out for safety by like a deputy sheriff. That scene. <laughs> right. And that sheriff testified that Larry had specifically told him, yes, I have two on board. Again, I don't know why he's planting that everywhere. Yeah. I don't know how that helps him. Is that boating protocol? I thought you only needed one. Well, was it? Know. Because didn't the guy say, like, the boat had another issue or was missing something else? And he's like, oh, but I got two rafts, though. And the guy's yes. like, oh, yeah, yeah, two rafts? That seems fine. That's good. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> Weird. That's true. Okay. But the prosecution pointed out that the deputy sheriff's testimony was inconsistent. At first, he stated that he had not known anything about there being two, but then later said, yeah, Larry told me that there were two on board. Again, that's what's so crazy about every reenactment in this, is that we have no idea what really happened, even this conversation with the deputy sheriff. Oh, I know. Yeah. There had to be... (laughs) I'm confused. (laughs) I swear to God, they made a reason for, like, why he had to say that. Well, there might be something with what happens later with the raft. Okay. So the prosecution and with the other raft. So the prosecution insists that on the night, Larry purposely pushed Debbie and her raft away from the boat when he was in the water. Mm -hmm. He then 
put on his, or with his scuba gear on, he swam under the raft and slashed it with a knife in order for her to freeze to death. <laughs> because this raft that was found, the only one that was found, had five punctures or cuts in the bottom of it. What? And they were able to prove or try to prove that it was not sabotaged beforehand because the cuts did not go all the way to the top. So the cuts would have had to have been punctured while it was inflated. Yeah, so that to me proves he did put her in that boat and she was in that boat thinking she was going to be okay. Yeah. And then he did that. Oh, God, it's horrible. But the prosecution failed to produce the knife that allegedly created these. And, of course, Larry says he didn't do it and they must have gotten cut, like, on a rock or something. But a knife is something that can sink. A raft's not going to sink, but a knife is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the n- there was a knife on the boat, but it did not match the slash marks that were found in the raft. So the prosecution claims that then the ra- this raft, Larry dragged it back to the boat after Debbie had fallen out of it, after it had no more air in it. And Jean Obino, an underwater expert, reported that he would have been unable to complete all the tasks that the prosecution claims Larry did that night. Obino states that Debbie's body would not have been able to float as far as it did without a raft. So they're sort of saying the cuts were made later. Mm. But I don't know then how did Larry get the raft back? I think he tried to pass it off that the one he had was the faulty one to begin with. Oh. And that's why yes, it had right. holes in and it. And that's why they said there's two. That's yes. why they said there's two. That's it. Because oh, he said, this yeah. is the one that we tried to blow it up and there were holes in it. So we couldn't. Oh. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. But yeah. so then this underwater expert saying that's not possible. I don't know why her body couldn't have floated to the shore. Right. Like, why Currents not? do weird things. I yeah. don't see that being improbable. Then I thought this part was interesting. According to Larry's attorneys, so his defense, Debbie's skin lividity proved that she came to shore in the life raft mm-hmm. because it showed that she was like laying or sitting. Mm-hmm. And DeSanto, the prosecuting attorney, states that its levels show that she was floating fully on her back, which would support the prosecution theory. Mm-hmm. After hearing all the evidence, and there was only circumstantial evidence for against Larry, but after hearing all of it, the jury found Larry guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. So Larry's daughters could not believe that he was responsible, and like I said, Debbie's parents support him as well. Her mother, Sylvia, says, quote, if you only knew Larry, you wouldn't think Larry would do anything like that. And her, her, Debbie's father's on there too. And one of their daughters is on there saying, this is ridiculous. They only put forth circumstantial evidence. He should not be in prison because of that. So they all believe he's innocent. So apparently after, so that's where it leaves off. There's no update or I think, yes, there is an update, but I'm going to tell you about it later. So First, after the broadcast, two witnesses came forward to UM and said that they found a life raft on Lake Superior a year after Debbie's death. Mm. And they believed it was the same type Larry had used that night, but their testimony was inconsistent. Hmm. 
in some cases or some stories, they said they found it in 1983, but in others, they couldn't be certain when they found it. But this is 10 years later, yeah. so mm-hmm. it's kind of understandable. Yeah. But then some people say that certain details in these people's stories say that they didn't find the raft until 1992. Okay. <sighs> so, I know. So... They also sometimes change the location of where they found it instead of it being at Lake Superior, being at a nearby river. Hmm. Because of their inconsistencies, they weren't dismissed as the testimonial witnesses. Mm-hmm. So after all possible appeals were exhausted unsuccessfully, old Larry was eventually released on parole after serving 22 years of his life sentence. Oh, Wow. He, as far as I can tell, is still alive, and I'm sure all of his family's happy that he's out because no one believed that he actually did it. So mm-hmm. he's actually gotten away with not, like, only serving 22 years, which I know is a long time, but it's not if you killed someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think he killed her. <laughs> I don't I know. Agree I agree with you. Yeah. So for one of the th- reasons I fi- think that he killed her is that five hours passed between the time that he lost Debbie, left her to go find what he realized was his own boat, and the time he reached shore. Five hours. Mm. He claimed that once he got to his boat, he passed out from exhaustion. What? He wasn't and even was swimming that And was just passed out on his boat. No, and he is an avid swimmer and yeah. diver. Yeah. And don't dry suits, like, help you float, too? And you would have adrenaline going if Mm -hmm. you really wanted to save your wife. You would not pass out from exhaustion. Yeah. Something would kick in. Yeah. Several friends were with him on a boat a few days before the incident, and they noticed no problems with it. Like, there was no leaking. Nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. And, again, no one noticed two life rafts on board at that time. Several gallons of water were found in the life raft found on the boat, despite the fact that Larry claimed that it had never been in the water. That's what I was wondering about. I was like, when they got it, did it have water on it? Yes. Because if it did, it shouldn't have. Right. Oh. If it was truly. If they didn't use it. Oh. Why would it be wet? (laughs) And he messed up because in the first story, he says that when we tried to blow up this first one, it wasn't holding air, so we threw it over the side. Well, if you threw it over the side, why is it on the boat? Oh, either way, there should not be a life raft on that boat. Yes. And it shouldn't have water in it. (sighs) Yeah. And then, of course, he, yeah, so that story went back and forth about how he had thrown it in the water, but then... But then also this one was found on the boat, and that's why the prosecuting attorneys said that he, their theory was he stabbed the bottom and dragged it back to the boat. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess, to make it look like the first one or something. Even though he had said he threw the first one overboard. So his diving knives, which is like a safety thing that divers have, um, which prosecutors believed he used to slash it, were not found on the boat. And that is unusual because where would they be? Like those are expensive tools that he has and there's mm-hmm. no reason that he, they shouldn't be on him anymore. Mm-hmm. Or then they were never found. So... What I think is interesting is that I was expecting everyone to be like, he did it, no doubt about it, 
Huh. I was just going to say, what does sitcoms online say? Because sometimes they blow my mind. It's not that. And some of the people that we see all the time really he's innocent. Or at least believe that he just should not have been... Convicted of murder. Put in... Convicted. So I'll just read you a few. So in 2007... Mozart PC 27 in 2007 said, I haven't watched this segment in a long time. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but it always amazes me how creative prosecutors can invent a story like this, applying superhuman feats to the defendant, yet also basic stupidity. Huh. If Larry Race did do this, why was it necessary to slice holes in the raft in the first place? All he had to do was tip over the raft, then drag the intact raft far away so she couldn't access it before drowning. Or what they mean is dying of hypothermia. Yeah. Once the raft is found, it will be pristine. I get that, but there's no reason why she would need to be then the prosecutors would say that he did that. That's more obvious to me almost because there's no reason she should not be in that raft. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So seems to me such a complicated scheme would include a basic thought process like that. I can just imagine Larry Race plotting for weeks and months saying, yeah, I'll cut the raft with a knife and it will look perfectly natural once the authorities find it. That's the perfect murder. If he had tipped the raft and waited for her to die... He would have died, too, presumably of the same cause. No. No. He would have gotten in the boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or he would have tipped it. <sighs> and he had the dry suit on. You just said yes. he could have stayed there for in 37 degrees indefinitely. Yeah. He would have been fine. And it's, he's, they say, of course he could have tipped the raft and drug it back with him, inflated to the boat, taken it somewhere else and left it off, but I think that would cause an even more suspicious circumstance. How likely is it that a woman who was not a good swimmer, but who was securely in a raft would somehow end up separated from the raft, even though nothing was wrong with it? It's hard to imagine she would voluntarily leave the raft, which I think is what the prosecuting attorneys would say, too. Mm -hmm. So what else could happen that would separate her from a raft with no problems? If the authorities had found the inflated intact raft, I'm sure they would have asked that question. Blah, blah, blah. This goes on. This one goes on forever. And Mozart PC is all over this. In 2007, they really... They were raising good points, but I don't... I didn't agree with what most people were saying on here. Okay, so then the car's 1986, who we see all the time. (laughs) Their post says, Just rewatched this case yesterday and decided to share some of my thoughts on it. At first, I was on the fence. On the one hand, if Race was guilty, he committed one of the most well-planned out murder plots. Near perfect, except Mm. for the fact that he got convicted ever. Fully disagree with that. On the other hand, if Race was innocent, he's got to be the unluckiest and most unfortunate person in the world for his boat to malfunction and his wife to drift away and die all on the same night. That's what started to make me suspicious of his story. His wife was allegedly leery about him getting on the Jenny Lee because of its history of problems. But, okay, so then I'm like, oh, good, I agree with the Cars 1986. Then they say... The prosecution's theory is quite laughable, and I'm actually surprised Race got convicted. It makes no sense, and it's extremely illogical for Race to have done all of that swimming to simply slash the life raft out from under his wife. 
The prosecution theory is wrong, as testified by the underwater expert who I mentioned. He says there's no way Race could have committed the crime the way the prosecution says he did. And Race's affairs are irrelevant, in my opinion. Several married people have been having affairs forever, and not all those marriages result in spouses killing each other. In the UM segment, Race's defense attorneys raised several good points to show evidence that he was innocent— Two rafts on board, the position of his wife's body and blood lividity, the distance where Debbie's body was found compared to where the Jenny Lee was, etc. But I thought the prosecutor brought up some damn good counterpoints. Point, counterpoint. In essence, all we really have to go on is racist story. On the surface, it seems plausible, but when you sit back and think about it, there are several holes. So they're bringing up both things, but I, I don't know. I, yeah. Okay, but you guys... Wise Guy 182 and Meg the Egg think he's innocent. Really? Yes. All right. Meg is my girl. Meg the Egg says, I think if Larry was going to commit murder, he would choose something that doesn't involve him putting his own life in jeopardy and doesn't involve as many variables and the possibility of unplanned contingencies. I mean, there are a ton of variables in Mm -hmm. that plan. True. And Meg Vague says, I know several people have been bothered by the, quote, there's nothing wrong with her comment, but I don't see any problems with it. <laughs> mm, I mean, oh, people say dumb things on TV, I guess, but. Yeah, but there's still. a problem with saying, oh, it's this wife's good enough that I have. There's nothing wrong with her. That's yeah. basically what he was saying mm-hmm. after he had slept around on her over and over again. Yeah, for years. And everyone, wise guys saying he jeopardized his own health. Everyone's saying that. Yeah, that's a good way to commit murder. Hell because yeah. people are going to say that about and you. And to try yeah. to look innocent, yes. Yes. He had to make it look like a, a t- catastrophe happened. He had that mm-hmm. suit on. If he was floating around and he was freezing and almost dying of hypothermia too, then that would be like, okay. But he was prepared for himself to be okay and to be yes. safe. And he found his boat again because he still had the lights on. Yeah. Which he probably knew he would be, if his story is even remotely true. Yeah. He probably knew that he would be able to find it again. Yes. That's the weirdest part to me that he's like, oh, silly me. I didn't realize it was my own boat. Like, you would know those were the lights from your boat. Probably that that whole time you were out there if they were the only lights around. Of course. So I was shocked. This is like the first time I've ever checked sitcoms online like do 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 can't wait for everyone to agree with me and then <laughs> people were defending the husband yeah i know wow. sometimes they zag believe yeah they zagged so that's the final appeal he's out and i don't know where he is but don't get on a boat with larry race that's all i have to say <laughs> And this is one where it's like, why is this not pulled from the edits? Yeah. Mm. Why do we have others that are not this big of a deal that get pulled because the family fights too? And then this is still on there and he's okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. Woof. Anyway. All right. I can't believe this. (laughs) Poor Debbie. Terrible. Terrible. 
Along with researching, recording, editing, and producing this podcast, I also manage the advertising opportunities. It is such a headache, and up until recently, it was one of the most tedious parts of this job. It used to be all but impossible to reach out directly to advertisers and companies. And then a fellow podcaster told me about Podcorn. It was a total game changer. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Yay! Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for the brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and where we monetize. Through Podcorn, we we worked with some amazing companies, and the whole process was completely transparent for both us and the advertiser. Podcasters, you got to get on this. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast by signing up at podcorn.com slash podcasters, or click the link in the show notes. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So this is an unexplained death, Seggy, and it's about Jeannie Tovery, which um, I'm probably going to say Tovria every time I read it because that's what it looks like. So yeah. I apologize if I flip-flop. April 1st, 1988, Jeannie Tovery was murdered in her own bed while she slept. Mm-hmm. Um, she is described by Stack as a wealthy socialite from Phoenix, Arizona, worth several million dollars. I and wish. he says most of it was inherited from her late husband. Jeannie was born in a small Arkansas farming community. She got married right out of high school and then, of course, um, got divorced in 1953. Uh, then she started cocktail waitressing in Phoenix. So Jeannie, at this time, was studying real estate law during her breaks at work so that she could eventually do that instead and start a better life for herself, in her own words. A queen. Jeannie got her real estate license in 1970, and according to Stack, she became an immediate success. 
1971, one of Jeannie's clients introduced her to Edward Tovery, a charming, wealthy divorcee. Sandra Elder, Jeannie's sister, is interviewed and says that Edward had all the qualities Jeannie was looking for. Quote, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the prince, and she considered Ed a prince. Mm. Now, weren't you thinking this was going a different way at first? Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, according to Stack, Ed swept Jeannie off her feet. So Ed's money came from a successful cattle business in his family that earned them millions, and they were actually some of the founding members, members of Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, wow. But Stack tells us that Ed had made his own name as a pilot in World War II. He had been taken as a prisoner of war after being shot down by the Germans. Ed had actually helped pull off the Great Escape, where 79 prisoners of war were able to go free through tunnels that they dug. Have you fucking seen that movie? No. no. I knew it was one. Oh, my gosh. I Good? am so claustrophobic, and it is... The most it portrays claustrophobia so well. It's because old, one of right? the guys, yeah, it's old. Is Steve McQueen in it? I can't remember. It's your nightmare. One of the characters is really claustrophobic and he has to go through the tunnels to escape. And it is like, oh, it portrays it so well, but it is so sad. Oh, wow. It is good. I mean, yeah, it's old. Hold on. I just want to see real quick. I think it is Steve McQueen. Yeah, Steve McQueen, James Garner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 1963. It's good. Oh, wow. I recommend. Um, so anyway, Ed has quite the story. Less than a year after meeting, Jeannie and Ed eloped in Hawaii. So they it's kind of weird in this segment. Um, they are like, basically, she fit right in with the rich people, even though that's not what she came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Danny Medina, a social columnist, uh, says Jeannie seemed like she'd had money forever. She was welcomed and extremely well-liked. He says that he can honestly say he doesn't know of one person who disliked Jeannie. Well, somebody disliked her. We love him. Do we oh, yeah, not we do. love him? He's like the Perez Hilton of the time, yeah, I think. He is like, fabulous. He was the, had the hot goss. Uh-huh. He says she was just one of those very special people with very special qualities. Her sister Sandra says she treated people the way she'd want to be treated, and she never seemed to be putting on airs. Sandra says she and Edward had a good life. Um, They would do casual entertaining. They liked the same things, and it was just, like, overall a good relationship. Stack tells us the only dark part of Jeannie and Ed's life was that Ed had respiratory issues ever since he was a POW, and by 1982, he was bedridden because of this. Mm. So Jeannie spent all of her time taking care of him. Mm, so sad. And they do a reenactment where Ed is, like, trying to get real with Jeannie about what's going on, and he's like, we should really talk about what you're going to do when I'm gone. Mm. And he's like, I want to make sure you're okay and that you get the house and you're comfortable. So Sandra says Jeannie was never greedy. She says she was never like, I have married you. Everything you have is mine. This was not Jeannie, she (laughs) says. So Ed ended up dying July 11th, 1983, and he left Jeannie the estate, uh, the house, and a valuable art collection all worth millions. Sandra says she thinks it was hard for Jeannie because Ed was the steady in her life, and it was hard for her to picture her life without him. But Stack says after a period of grieving, Jeannie re-entered the social scene in Phoenix. 
Medina says it was her way of getting over it and meeting people. Um, and then they show a lot of photos of Jeannie in fancy dresses. Love it. And mm-hmm. he says she became quite a socialite and chaired many balls, and it became a way of doing things for herself. Mm. Um, which to me, I was like, she was filling that void yeah, with like of course. trying to be busy and like doing stuff. You know, I want to be rich and throw balls when I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, totally. Sure. Uh, March 31st, 1988, Jeannie was spending the evening finishing up invitations for a high society party. At 7 p.m., she talked to her sister, but by 1 a.m., she was dead. Mm-hmm. Medina says it did a number on all of us because they found out she had passed away right after everyone started receiving the invitations that she was addressing. That's so that's so like chilling. Yeah. yeah. He says, quote, it was almost like, remember my party? Mm. It was very spooky. Mm. They didn't. They uh, then do a reenactment of the crime scene at Jeannie's house. Um, so what they show is things have been rifled through and thrown around and ransacked. Jeannie is laying in her bed with a pillow over her face, and you can see blood on it, but you can't really tell what's going on. They found many fingerprints at the scene, but not much other physical evidence. Her purse, ID, and credit cards were missing, but Detective Ernie Hamrick of the Phoenix PD says the cards were never found and still had not been used to the day of the interview. They've also never been able to identify the fingerprints. Hamrick says it's his and two other detectives' opinions that Jeannie was killed because someone had put a hit out on her. That's crazy. The police felt that the killer knew the neighborhood because he'd easily gained access to the home. Hamrick says the person had knowledge of the home because he'd come in through a window but done it in a way that did not set off the alarm system. So I read in some places that it was the only window that didn't have the alarm system on it. Which is weird to me. Huh. And I don't know if that's because it was like a smaller window. It was like a kitchen window. So it was was on the smaller side for sure from the pictures I've seen. So to arm it seemed unnecessary maybe Maybe. I don't know. And then the other piece of this that they're not really explaining is that it was a gated community. So to get in, Mm. someone literally had to like scale the side of a mountain. What? To get in. Wow. Yeah. (sighs) So, yeah. He also explains that the house had all-white carpeting, but there was no evidence of anyone anywhere except Jeannie's bedroom, so it seemed like the killer knew where she was and just how to get there. So part of that, too, in the comments that people were talking about is, like, if he scaled a fucking mountain, how does he not bring in a bunch of, like, debris and whatnot? Yeah. Getting in. Because there were no obvious signs of struggle, it could be stated that Jeannie was killed in her sleep. So they do a reenactment of this. The killer comes in, covers her with a pillow, and then shoots her through it to muffle the sound. They felt that the killer had tried to make it look like a burglary by scattering Jeannie's costume jewelry around. But that clearly wasn't the motive since there was real jewelry in the house that was untouched. Mm -hmm. They also felt that they wanted someone to be alerted since they chose to exit from a sliding door that did have the alarm on it. Rather than go back out the window with no alarm. So Hamrick says maybe the killer wanted to let the person who hired him know that the job was done. Stack says police were at a loss as to who could have wanted Jeannie dead until they listened to old tapes from her answering machine. So this is when it gets weird. Yes. So weird. So then they play the actual tapes from the answering machine. um, And it's messages from a man calling himself Gordon Phillips, who claimed to be a magazine writer. In 1987, Phillips had interviewed Jeannie about her husband's POW experience for a book he said he was writing. So they do this reenactment of Phillips. He's trying to sit down with her to discuss her husband, which is just kind of weird. I don't know. 
He says he wants to hear about Ed's POW days, and he keeps trying. She keeps trying to tell him, like, I really don't know that much about it. Mm-hmm. Like they had met so long after that happened, mm-hmm. but he persists. And at one point, she's like, do you have any ID? And he's like, no, no, I'm freelance. I I don't have that. I'm not really on the staff. So she decides to stop the interview. And she's like, you should leave. Mm -hmm. And so later, Sandra tells us that Jeannie checked with Time Magazine, which is where he said he wrote for. And they did not know who he was. So Sandra said multiple times that she tried to tell Phillips he should talk to somebody else. But he just kept calling her and calling her. So she started to think she saw him following her when she was out around town. So creepy. Mm -hmm. She says for a while she'd say she saw Phillips everywhere she went. Mm. In public meetings, she'd see him in the crowd, and it made her very nervous. But Stack says authorities still haven't figured out who Gordon Phillips is, where he is, or if he was involved in Jeannie's murder. So it's just kind of like a weird thing that happened before all this. Mm. Sandra says it's inconceivable to her that Jeannie was murdered, and her greatest fear is not knowing why. Hmm. Quote, I miss her. She was my sister. She was my best friend. She was mine, and she didn't deserve to die. So then they do an update, and it just says, Based on fingerprints found at the crime scene, the man who called himself Gordon Phillips was identified as James Cornell Harrod. Harrod was found guilty on first-degree murder and sentenced to death. (sighs) I was like, what? I know. I know. Oh, my God. Like, classic shitty update. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. And then it says the person who hired Herod to kill Jeannie has never been identified. So then you're like, what? Right. <laughs> okay. And so was he really trying to get close to her that whole time just to kill her? He was hired from the start? Well, well Okay. It's complicated. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're going to have to get into it. That's fine. I got time. So I thought this one would be kind of like, you know, we have this guy. We know what happened. That's the end of it. But it's really not like that. So it's a bit messy. And there's a lot of opinions on the internet about it. So oh, we'll just okay. do our best. Okay. So due to the original recorded segment not having anything to do with, like, knowing anything about the murder, mm-hmm. we don't know the part about the killer being hired in the segment. That's okay. just the little blurb in the update. Right. So UM doesn't get into that angle at all. Mm-hmm. So the big thing to know is that Ed had kids. He had three kids. Oh. And yet the entire estate was left to Jeannie. Oh. The millions of dollars. Oh, fuck. Uh-oh. Well, that's motive right there. Exactly. So I'm just going to tell it, like, in my own words as much as possible because there's just so much. Okay. So the case went nowhere for several years after the UM airing. So I'm guessing that it was um, triggered by a rerun of the segment. Okay. But the police eventually got an anonymous tip from a person who said they recognized the voice in the answering machine messages. Oh, Oh, damn. Wow. Yes. So only one um, source that I read said that it was the brother-in-law of this person had recognized him and brought it up to other people they knew. Like, do you think this sounds like him? And wow. everybody was like, that's fucking him. Oh, my God. And isn't that crazy? Voices are so personal. Yeah. Yes. They're like fingerprints. Like, I thought about it, and I was like, what What are the chances that it just really sounds like somebody else? But I was like, that's, if you've listened to it over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. You really know. Wow. So, allegedly, it was a person who the brother-in-law sh- shared it with. That ended up calling the police and reporting it. Okay. So the 
man was James Cornell Herod, as they say in the update. Um, he also went by Butch. The brother-in-law and others who knew Butch um, all just totally agreed it sounded like his voice. So that's why the report was made. James Herod's ex-wife also said that he had confessed to her that he'd been involved in the crime. Oh. Um, after being offered immunity... Herod's ex-wife told police that Herod told her he was hired to kill Jeannie for $100,000 and that he posed as Gordon Phillips to get into the home for a look. So he was casing the house as Phillips. Oh, my gosh. She also said Herod was going to supervise the murder and that he received boxes of cash. Whoa. In 1995, fingerprints from the scene were positively matched to James Herod. So there were 18 prints in total. There were a whole bunch of them around that kitchen window that was the point of entry. Why are you not wearing gloves? What are you doing? I know. There's a lot of confusing things about this. (laughs) You're hired to do this and you're... That's weird. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of prints around that window. And then there's a few more in the kitchen and a partial palm print also in the kitchen. So based on these matching Herod, he's arrested. Jeannie's daughter, who had met the Gordon Phillips, the reporter, before, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. later picked Herod out of a lineup of people being like, that's the guy I know as Gordon Phillips. Okay. So in 1998, Herod ends up being sentenced to death. Jeez. He sits on death row until 2005 when the Supreme Court case of Ring versus Arizona in 2002 ruled that the death penalty sentencing statute in Arizona at the time of Herod's original sentencing in 1998 was unconstitutional. Mm. So the effect of Ring versus Arizona was that the 38 states with the death penalty had to have uh, trial jurors instead of judges determine if aggravating circumstances were part of the case. Okay. Which is what would lead it to be a a death sentence. Yeah. So the Arizona legislature later went a step further, also giving jurors instead of judges the power to decide if a convicted murderer should live or die. Maricopa County jurors were not asked to reconsider Herod's guilt or innocence in the celebrated case, just whether he deserves to go back to death row in Florence. Okay. So it wasn't like, let's redo this whole trial. Yeah. It was just, are there aggravated circumstances in this trial? Right. Mm-hmm. So the jurors end up finding that there were aggravated circumstances in the case and that the, it was called pecuniary gain, which in this case means it was a murder for money. Oh, okay. There could have been a lot of different things that would call that an aggravated circumstance but that was the one that they had okay Okay. so he ends up just being resentenced to the death penalty like even though this whole thing got kind of reopened again it just went back to how it was so there's just a lot of speculation and talk about what was going on so he never came clean with who hired him even though he was sentenced to death he did not say that he did it Oh, he never admitted to doing it at all. He did not say that he did it. And okay. people think that he did do it, and they think they know who hired him. Okay. But he did not admit to doing it and did not admit involvement of the person that people think it was. Wow. Okay. And, uh, okay. And did he ever explain his um, fingerprints around the window and stuff? We'll get to that. Okay. okay. So the first big thing that is said about this case is that the person who hired Herod was Ed Tov- Tovery's son. His He was Ed Tovery Jr., but he went by Hap. 
Okay. So people think that Hap is the one that hired him. And obviously, based on the millions of dollars that were not left him. Yeah. But and this is going to bop back and forth a little bit. But I do need to say, I read in multiple sources that the children were all left $200,000 each, which, of course, isn't all of it, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. And they also had um, an additional 50000 from something else, like maybe one of his investments or something. And then their grandfather had also left them money. So in total, basically, all the children got like $600,000. Mm. But that's not, that's not millions, babe. It's not millions, but a lot of people are like, they were fine. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I could see you being pretty pissed off that yeah. your dad's new wife got yeah. all of that money. Mm-hmm. And who knows what effort w- she was making with the kids. I mean, yeah. not saying they did anything, but obviously. But also put yourself in her shoes. Wouldn't you think, fuck, these kids are probably pissed because I'd be pissed. I'm going to, like, shower them with gifts or I'm going to you yeah. know, give mm-hmm. them some of this money just because I want to have a relationship with them and I'd be mad too. Like it, And obviously we don't know if she did that, but it doesn't seem... I don't think she did because I read like in a that. few places that they didn't get along. Oof. And, like, I can see that. She was a lot younger than him. Mm-hmm. She came in much later in his life. Mm-hmm. And suddenly... He's old and he's sick and he dies and she gets all the money. Yeah, so, man. Yeah. That's a That's upsetting. Even if you and like also, her, that's what upsetting. What is he yeah. doing? Why did he do that? You know? People do dumb things good. for people they love. Yeah. yeah. So then it is later discovered by authorities that James Herod and Hap Tovery were in frequent phone contact for weeks, weeks leading up to the murder. Okay. And also that Hap paid Herod 35000 at one point. For what? Well, they'll <laughs> what tell you what they were doing. So police find multiple records of calls and multiple money transfers between the two. So Herod argued that the money and calls connected to Tovery were because of business dealings they had together in a company that they were a part of together called Mecca, M-E-C-A, uh, Mineral Exploration Companies of the Americas, where Ed was the president and Herod served as a consultant. Sorry, Ed is Hap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they've got, it, the case goes into the whole thing. They've got like bank statements. They've got all this stuff showing all these different things happening. There's like photographs of the people that were involved with this company and all this stuff. But the state kept arguing that it was like a front. So yeah, that's really smart, though. Mm-hmm. To set all that up if you're going to contract someone to kill somebody. It's pretty brilliant. And so, of course, Hap's name is brought in in this investigation, but he would not testify due to to he would just say Fifth Amendment every time they would try to talk to him or get him involved in these trials. Herod really wanted Hap to come talk and explain this, like, about their company, like, come come, give your testimony. Quote, Herod argues that his intended questions would not have incriminated Tovery and would only establish the legitimacy of the mineral exploration company and should have been allowed at his trial. So, but Hap would not talk. Um, but I there's mean, never... That I is know. so suspicious. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't it basically like anytime someone pleads the fifth, they're guilty. They just don't want to talk yeah. about it. Like, 
Can someone please tell me any time in history where someone pled the fifth and they didn't do anything wrong? Right. <laughs> I totally agree. Like, if you're innocent, come tell your story. Right. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, man. But there's never been enough evidence to charge Hap, Tovery, or any of the other siblings because it's just these money exchanges and phone calls. And, and it's, it's all not legit. enough. Yeah. Wow. So Herod has maintained his innocence the entire time, like I said, and he won't throw Hap under the bus either. He denies Hap is involved in any kind of crime at all. Well, he can't. I mean, because Hap would, if, it would be his only hope of getting out Mm -hmm. is if they just stick with this story. Mm. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if he says he hired me, his chance is over. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, true. So those are kind of like the facts that are out there that are for sure facts. So then I was diving into sitcoms online. As I'm clicking through lots of pages, I stumble upon these posts from James Harrod's sister. Okay. So mm. she is extremely vocal on the message boards and you see it like over time it starts in 2007 oh i love when that happens and over time she's like coming in and like shooting back to people with like nope this is what happened blah blah blah. and it like escalates so that's e girl her very first comment and her username is truth seeker um her very first comment is titled not all is as it appears she says, I am the sister of James Herod, and I can assure you that unless you have read the thousands of pages of discovery generated by the Phoenix police, you do not have a clue what happened in this case. Oof. I have spent 12 years, ends up being like over 20 years at the end of this, yeah, doing research and consulting professionals in all fields on this case. All is not as it appears. There are confessions from others, some locked away, some not. The case is far from solved. For those whom believe that all you hear or read is the truth, you need to keep your eyes open. I declined to appear, to appear on the aired episode due to, due to the lack of research performed by the production company and the bias <laughs> that comes with the lack of the actual facts. Yes, I said facts. Without facts, there is only speculation and rumors. Just be glad that you are not reading a story like this about yourself. It takes real guts to listen to the lies and not attempt to correct all of them. Uh. So then, and then she mentions this Phoenix Magazine article, which is the only thing I can find on the internet that agrees with her. <laughs> oh. And the title of the article is, Is the Wrong Man on Death Row for the Murder of an Heiress? So we'll talk about that a little bit, but it really stands alone. And it was written in 2007, so I'm not giving it a lot of credence. credence. Yeah. So James's sister is named June Barney. Um, and she is easily his biggest supporter, advocate, the main person trying to fight this conviction and prove mm-hmm. that James is innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, she runs a website called jamesherrod.net, and she has that information laid out, honey. She has collected, like I said, 20-plus years of stuff, um, and she ha- she claims to have all this evidence disproving many of the pieces of information that led to the conviction. So she's got a lot of stuff going on on this website. Like, at one point, I looked up and, like, all my tabs were that website (laughs) because she's just got so much crazy stuff on there. She basically has points going against every piece of factual information that we know. One of her biggest points early on was the fingerprints. Uh Since they were such a big part of the conviction, she thinks that the prints were planted there. Her biggest sticking point is that, 
all that was ever presented in trial were the print cards, which is like they take that print onto something else. Mm. And those are presented in the trial. But the actual pane of glass was left at the scene rather than taken into custody. So I don't know how common that would be to bring an entire window. The jury doesn't know how to inspect fingerprints. Right. So you're going to show them a pane of glass and then what they're supposed to figure out if those prints match or not? Like, no. Yeah. She thinks that because there is no, the window was not kept in the chain of custody that we should not submit the prints as evidence in the trial. I don't think, I didn't know that's ever happened. Weird. Yeah. So in the trial, they what they did was they had like a replica of the pane of glass with like dots where the fingerprints were. But then they also just showed the cards with the actual fingerprints. Like I've never even thought they wouldn't, they don't cut out every piece of wall that has fingerprints on them, it seems. Well, and even if they do, they certainly don't bring it in to show to the jury who doesn't know how to look for fingerprint evidence. I know. Oh, God. Okay. So, and I did read somewhere that um, the fingerprint expert who was at the trial, like, begrudgingly was like, okay, yes, prints could have been planted, but I don't think that's what happened here. He's like, yes, that's a possibility, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's what happened. Why frame this random guy? Like, why do that? I know. He was the one that was sniffing around Jeannie. Right. Like, he was around her. He made himself in her universe. And then suddenly someone just frames him, even though he's following her and casing her apartment. Like, it's ridiculous. It's just a ridiculous yeah. story. I'm still a little unclear on is Philip Gordon, Gordon Phillips, him or not. I don't know. For but he was sure. picked out of a lineup. Like, he was identified. He was, but sometimes that's wrong. Sometimes that happens where you're like, oh, that's the guy, and it wasn't the guy. The mm. composite and the guy, to me, I can see it, but they don't look exactly alike. So I don't know. So, yeah, she's got this website. She's got a tab for answering machine tapes, a tab for wow. ex-wife's testimony, a tab for confession from the real killer, a tab Who's for the real killer? <laughs> so she will tell you. She's got all kinds of stuff on here. She's got recordings of, like, uh, her talking to the ex-wife in which she claims that it proves she lied. And I listened to it, but it's, like, really hard to understand, and I just gave up. Um, She's got a lot of police notes that she claims are confessions from the real killer. But it's – there's nothing on the document that shows that it's, like, a legitimate document. And some of it's, like, handwritten. So I'm just like, girl, like, mm mm-mm. So one other source did mention the names of the people that June claims are the actual criminals involved, which was that Phoenix Magazine article. Okay. And it said, for a time, police and prosecutors were apparently in negotiations with a murderer, Joe Kahlo, over what he knew about Jean Tovery's death. And Kahlo insisted he knew precisely who killed her. He fingered a hitman named James Majors, who he himself had hired for a series of murders around the same time as Jean's. Quote, Majors killed her, he told officials in May of 1991. Kalo's version of the murder was that Jean was transporting drugs, quote, for excitement and decided she'd had enough. She was killed because she wanted to stop transporting drugs, the police report from their conversation notes. Um, And it said Kalo is currently in an Arizona prison while Majors is on death row in California. Neither responded to requests for interviews about this case. So... So she was running drugs for excitement. That's what they said. This real estate socialite who is so wealthy. Who doesn't need to 
do that. You know how bored you get after your husband dies? And yeah. Then like, you know I what? Know. I know. It's so boring to have so much money. It's boring to have a lot of money and throw tons of balls. Yeah. Yeah. So June also has polygraph results for James, which he did pass. And it looked legit to me, actually. That part, she had, like, the statement in there and the results, and it all looked legit. So I don't know about that. June also outlines again and again that the Mecca business was real. She said that the state presented the bank records showing that Herod got most of the money, but she claims the actual statements prove that not true. They also disprove his ex-wife's claim that he was paid $100,000. So apparently, according to her, it was, like, more small amounts of money. So... I could go on and on, but I just have a really hard time with the fact that, like, no one is backing up any of the information she's saying. Yeah. But I did find a few other interesting comments on the message boards. Someone named Minkia9455 said, I personally knew Hap, Cricket, and Priscilla. Yes, the children were named Hap, Cricket, and Priscilla. No, they were not. (laughs) If anyone was planning this, it was Hap. Jean was not the sweet angel she was made out to be, and her daughter was no prize either. And then another person who is a senior member that you guys would probably recognize the username of said, All I will say is Hap will never get what is coming to him, at least not here. James Harrod did not kill Jean Tovery. Hap did. But James was not involved, thus there was nothing for him to tell. They offered James a plea bargain to second-degree murder if he would throw Hap under the bus, but he refused. The one they really wanted to go after was Hap, and James refused because he was not involved in it. And then she says, I also agree Jeannie was no angel and her daughter was a real piece of work. So there's people out there that say they know Hap and that they think he could have done it. (laughs) So they think that Hap physically murdered her and then framed Herod? One person said that. I think, I don't know. Oh, and by the way, Herod did die in... January of 2019 in prison. So this one person that was commenting on the message boards as a PI, and he was kind of a dick bitch, but I did pull one of his pieces of information. Police also identified four more of Herod's fingerprints on Jean Tovery's kitchen counter and a palm print on weather stripping removed from the kitchen window. The damning fingerprint trail ended in the kitchen, which has led to speculation by Prosecutor Ayler and others that Herod may have had a co-conspirator in the slaying. So that's one thing a lot of people agree Uh. on is that it wasn't just Herod. They there were, were both other people there. there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people on the internet are like, it wasn't just him. It wasn't just him. Hmm. Okay. So he's always maintained his innocence and testified at both his 1997 trial and the more recent hearing in 20, 2005. Um, but he never could adequately explain how his fingerprints got on the kitchen window. Yeah, of course not. That was the only point of access inside the Tovery home without setting off alarms. So, yeah, I I can possibly believe he wasn't the only person. Yeah. And that yeah. maybe he was like a middleman or something. Right. But I do think he had to be there. Like, I just there. don't think the prince and yeah. the way they were found. The shame of it seem... is that this guy, Hap, never had to pay for his role in it. Right. But, like, there's no, like, he wasn't framed. He was there, yeah. obviously. And I think Hap probably told him, hey... The window in the kitchen doesn't have the alarm because, like, that's probably not something. I mean, I don't know how long he was there trying to pretend that he was interviewing Gene to case the place, but I don't think that's something that would be outward, like, outwardly visible. So I'm sure Hap told him that. I'm sure Hap told him how to get into the gate, like, what the code was. Mm -hmm. So he's definitely involved. You know, he just, like, I don't know why this guy Herod keeps 
like kept denying it and didn't just turn Hap in. I know. And like the one weird thing is that Herod has no criminal history whatsoever. Yeah. That is a little bit weird. But but I mean, if he was getting paid a ton of money, like people do crazy shit for a hundred thousand. Yeah, that's what I was. And that was a hundred thousand dollars like back then. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Like I would do crazy shit for a hundred thousand dollars right now, and it's not as much money as it was back then. Right. <laughs> yes. And and again, if if Hap didn't do anything, why doesn't he just come out and tell yeah. what he knows exactly. and tell the truth? Exactly. No, the whole thing stinks. It's, yeah, it's really hotly debated all over the boards, but it seems like that's probably what happened. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Man. Now I want to know more about Jean and her daughter. What what was going on there? Yeah, there was some stuff about that because a lot of people were like, well, since she got, since Jean got the entire estate when Ed died, when Jean died, who would have gotten that money? Her daughter. Her daughter. So, yeah. So people were saying that her daughter was involved in it? Yeah, I didn't go down that road because no, that doesn't it track. was too much. But yeah. Wow. It's I, scandalous. Yeah. Whenever someone says, no one would ever hate this person, there's somebody that does. Someone does. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. Yeah. That's Gets. very messy. messy. Messy, messy. Good job. Yeah, nice work. Thanks. Oof. I love the holidays. I love everything about them. But one of my favorite things is buying gifts for the people that I care about. Recently, I discovered Elfster. Elfster is the number one secret Santa app in the world. With Elfster, you can create a free gift exchange to make gift giving easier. You just set the time and the budget, and Elfster takes care of the rest. They even draw the names for you. You can create a virtual gift exchange, and it's an amazing way to bring friends and family together near and far, no matter where they are in the world. The coolest part is that you and your loved ones can add gifts to personal wish lists from all the brands that you love, including Amazon, Etsy, Fanatics, Nordstrom, Sephora, and Zappos. You can make multiple wish lists and then share them with different gift exchange groups. For example, if you have a secret Santa with your coworkers for a lower dollar amount than, say, your friends and family or even your significant other. And if you're trying to figure out what you'd like for the holidays, you can choose from Elfster's curated gift guides and get some goodies. So join the over 17 million people who use Elfster for their holiday gift giving and go to elfster.com, E-L-F-S-T-E-R.com, or download the app today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up with a little lost love. Okay. So Stack begins by telling us that in Manitoba, Canada, just across from the North Dakota border, there is a family called the Myron clan. He says that they are part of the Plain Ojibwe Indian Nation. In the 1940s, the Myrons found themselves caught between the global politics of the Second World War and the deeply rooted traditions of the Ojibwe. There were seven children in the Myron family. The youngest girl, Helen Rose, 
was six months old in 1925, and her family has not seen her for over 50 years. Flora Merrick, Helen Rose's sister, says that it has gone on too long. The family has missed Helen Rose, and too many years have gone by, and they would like to find her now. Angus Merrick, Helen Rose's brother-in-law, says that no matter where she is, they still love her and that they're all concerned about her too. Stack says that when the Myron children were growing up, they spent the winter months at a government boarding school. And every summer, they came home to their parents' log cabin on the Ojibwe reservation. And then there is a reenactment of Helen Rose's mother. She's laying in bed, and she seems very ill. And she tells Helen Rose to come and sit beside her. And Stack says that in September of 1932, the children were preparing to return to school, even though their mother was gravely ill. In the reenactment, the mother tells Helen Rose that she might not be there when she gets home from school for the summer. And she tells her to be a good girl and make her proud, Mm. which is like, what a heartbreaking scene. Mm -hmm. And we should say these are residential schools, which, of course, we've known now. Yeah, this is the segment that the listener wrote to us about for the shortstop. Yeah. So a month later, Archie Myron showed up at his children's school and told the children that their mother had died. Stack says that all of the children were devastated, but especially Helen Rose. She was always her mother's favorite and would never fully recover from her death. By 1941, Helen Rose was 17 and in her junior year at the boarding school. Hitler's armies were in full swing, and Helen Rose's principal was actively interventionist. She became swept up in the anti-fascist fervor. There's a reenactment, and the principal tells the children that if they want to join something that really matters, they will join the reserves. Mm. Angus Merrick says that, quote, they were teaching, quote, them the role of the other society. And he presumes that's where Helen got the idea to, quote, better her life with the outside world and join the Air Force. So I looked into it, and over 3,000 First Nations soldiers enlisted in the Canadian military in the Second World War, with 1,000 more Metis, Inuit, and non-status Indian soldiers serving without official recognition of their Indigenous identity. Hmm. And more than 200 Indigenous soldiers were killed or died from wounds during the Second World War. She was one of only about 3,000 people that enlisted. Sack says that Helen Rose dropped out of high school, and in an unprecedented move for an Ojibwe woman, she enlisted in the Royal Canadian Air Force. When they found out that she was underage, the Air Force ordered her to obtain her father's permission. So Helen Rose returned to the reservation in July, and as a tribal elder, Archie Myron was helping preside over the annual Sun or Thirsting Dance uh, when the Plains Ojibwe erect traditional structures and offer prayers to quote the great spirit so i looked this up and wikipedia said that typically the sun dance is a grueling ordeal for the dancers a physical and spiritual test that they offer in sacrifice for their people the object of the sun dance is to offer personal sacrifices for the benefit of one's family and community the dancers fast for many days in the open air and regardless of whatever weather occurs Communities plan and organize for at least a year to prepare for the ceremony. Usually one leader or a small group of leaders are in charge of the ceremony, but many elders help out and advise, which I guess is what Archie was doing at the time that Helen showed up. Mm-hmm. Jean Michis, Helen Rose's sister, says that Helen Rose had papers in her hand and that she asked her dad to sign them. He wouldn't sign because he didn't want her to die somewhere else. 
Mm-hmm. He didn't want her to go to war and not come back, which yeah. I get. Totally. Yeah. It was sad. So Jean says that Helen Rose got angry and told him that if he didn't sign them, that he would never see her again and she would just get someone else to sign them for her. And in the reenactment, she walks away and she's like, I'm just going to find somebody else. Like, I'm doing this. So Angus says that friends and relatives would have been proud to see Helen in the Air Force. Angus says that if Archie would have just signed those papers, they would have had Helen Rose all of this time. So sad. So uh, Helen Rose didn't return to her father's cabin that night and spent the night with her aunt. The next morning, she said her last goodbyes. Angus says that Helen Rose told her auntie that she would never see her again and that she was never coming back. She's just like... It's so sad. And you think she's 17, so okay, but she meant it. She never came back. Or she did, but she never came back to her family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well... So, do they ever say who did sign the papers? Like, yeah. how did that happen? I think she probably just got somebody to sign them. They yeah. probably got someone to just forge them. I, it's not like she had to go to a notary. Right. The Air Force wanted her, so it was probably just a bit of red tape. Yeah. And I'm sure if she got someone else to sign them and showed up, I don't think they were going to question it or verify it. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think probably she just got someone to, to sign them for her. Mm-hmm. So Stack says that two years later, Helen Rose did return to the area. Angus Merrick was shocked to see Helen Rose at a general store about 15 miles from the reservation. Angus says that she had her uniform on and, oh, she looked good, which is so sweet. (laughs) And she does. She's all spiffy. Oh, my God, that picture. I know. I know. She's gorgeous. Yes. So Angus says that he told Helen Rose that her father was right across the street and he would go get him. So he went and told Archie, he went and told Archie that his daughter was right across the way. And Angus says that without hesitation, Archie came right away, implying that Archie was not mad and Archie wanted to see her. Of course. By the time they got back, though, Helen was gone, which is pretty wild. She did not want to see her father. Mm -hmm. That was it. Stack says that 16 years later, Archie Myron died without ever having made peace with his youngest daughter. So sad. Each year, the Myron family gathers at the cemetery to honor the entire Myron clan with an Ojibwe ceremony. The extended family now numbers 150, and they long for the return of Helen Rose. Even if she has passed away, her family wants to know so that Helen Rose's spirit can be honored within the Ojibwe tradition. So yeah, Carlin, you're right. Of course he didn't want her Mm -hmm. to go to war and be in this, you know, murdered in a foreign land and never see her again. Yeah, and never come back again. Yeah. And never come back again. That's what's so sad about it is she never came back again, right? Like right. she would have most likely come back if he would have signed those papers, but he didn't. And therefore she never came back again. It's yeah. heartbreaking. Well, and I was just going to say, it's not like he was like, if you go into the military, I'll never talk to you again. No, that's not at all what it was. It was, I want you to be safe and I want you to be here. Yeah, it was her. It was her that was done. Yeah. Mm. So Jean Meaches says that she doesn't know what's been keeping Helen Rose away. Surely she cannot hold a grudge this long. Mm. She says the siblings have no part in it. It was between Helen Rose and her father. Angus says that she said that she was, Angus says that she said she wasn't going to come back and she stuck to her word like a true, like a real Indian woman. So the update that we get 
says, thanks to a viewer tip, Helen Rose was located in Westchester County in upstate New York. So I guess Helen did okay for herself. Because Westchester, New York is pretty fancy. She was put in contact with her family members in Canada, but they didn't show the reunion for for some Mm, reason. Yeah. So I wasn't really able to find anything Mm. about this. Yeah. Partly it's Canadian, partly it's people living on Indigenous land Mm -hmm. in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. There were two different spellings of Myron, and presumably Helen Rose was married, so her name changed again. Mm -hmm. I found one Facebook comment from a woman who was her great-granddaughter or granddaughter, and whatever the comment was, it implied that she had never met Helen Rose and that she didn't even have a photograph of her. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. I did read, though, that Helen Rose... Once she was reunited with her siblings, she kept in touch with all of them until they passed away. Oh, well, that's nice. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the family went to UM, because that was kind of a big deal for their community to kind of reach out to this American television show and sort of invite this show into their community. Mm -hmm. They said they, they hired a research advisor, and the advisor ran into a dead end with, with the armed forces. This research advisor contacted UM because apparently the armed forces, like, said they couldn't tell them anything. Like, if she's taking a pension, if she's alive, if she's right. dead, they can't tell the family anything without Helen Rose's permission. Hmm. So that's why they were like, okay, we can't do this internally. We've got to go. We And th- we have to go international. We've got to take this to, like, the United States and, and hope that it's seen in Canada. Yeah. So Jean Meachie's... Uh, I found I only found one obituary for Helen's relatives. It was of Jean Meachies, who was interviewed. She died in 2010, and at the time of her death, the only sibling that was still alive was Helen. Apparently, Jean Meachies had, I think, 90 grandchildren, oh. 60 great-grandchildren or something at the time of her passing. Oh so, my. you know, they had said that the Myron clan was at 150 back when they aired the segment, and by 2010, it was much, much more than that. Wow. Someone was looking for her on a message board. They said that she had, they had been raised, that Helen was their guardian, and that they were looking for her, and that she had lived in Monroe, New York, which is in Orange County, not West, Westchester County. Um, so I, I don't know. But no one ever replied. People were like, contact this place, contact that place. But mm-hmm. no one was like, oh, I remember that case. There's, not, there's nothing out there, really. Hmm. And also, I'm assuming that Helen Rose has since passed away because she would almost be 100 years old. Yeah. Today. And then, Eliza, you mentioned the residential schools, the Mm -hmm. boarding schools, which were actually residential schools. Mm -hmm. So I found out that the children were sent to Portage Residential School, which, of course, was a nightmare. And I'm sure our listeners are very familiar, but if you're new to the show, in Canada's residential school system, the federal government took more than 150,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children from their families and forced them to attend church-run boarding schools designed to assimilate them by stripping them of their own language and cultures. Aside from that, abuse and neglect were rampant in the schools. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission estimates 6,000 children died from disease, malnourishment, suicide, failed escape attempts, and more. It's horrible. The last school closed in 1996. This was not a million years ago. This is very recent. And it's something that needs to be talked about. And a lot of... 
them got blown up this year when lots of bodies were found. Yeah, when the graves were found. Absolutely. The Long Plain First Nation, which is where the Myrans were from, acquired the Portage Residential School Mm. in 1981 and turned it into a place that serves the community. Mm. It is now called the Rufus Prince Building, named for a residential school survivor, chief, and Second World War veteran, and is home to a museum, archives, and the Dakota Ojibwe Police. So the man who is now the current chief gives a really interesting interview for public radio about his struggle in deciding whether or not to destroy the building. Hmm. A lot of people in his community just wanted they wanted it torn down. He he speaks about going through and the memories and not and knowing exactly where certain rooms were, rooms where the whips were kept. Hmm. Just really visceral terrible memories. But he thought there was more strength in taking the building back and giving it new life and purpose. Wow. So I'll link to the interview in the show notes. Uh, The current chief's name is Ernie Daniels. And um, yeah, he ultimately decided that this would be a better better way to use this building instead of destroying it and trying to wipe it away Mm -hmm. would be to turn it into something that serves the community and is also an archive that tells the story and the history of these residential schools. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. That's all I've got for Helen Rose. Oh, man. Yeah, I I know. Maybe she didn't know that her dad had passed. I think that – here's what I think happened, and I think this happens a lot when families kind of go their separate ways, is that so much time passes Mm -hmm. that you assume that that's it and you can't go back. You assume that, like, so much time has passed. I'm sure Helen Rose – probably was like, it's been 20 years. It's been 30 years. It's been 40 years. They're probably not thinking about me at all. They're probably, you know, I think that happens a lot. And I think that's probably what happened here. I mean, she clearly kept in contact. You know, she clearly wanted to see her siblings because she kept in contact with them once they found her. Yeah. So Mm. I think it was just like she left the reservation. She ended up in the United States. You know, she's living a completely different life than Mm -hmm. they are. And I think she probably thought, ah, they don't need me. Yeah. Sad. It is sad. But they really, you know, they clearly did. And I, I'm I'm glad that they all got to see each other and they got to tell her that. Yeah. Yeah. Aww. Hey, guys, it's Carlin. When I'm not listening to true crime, I do love to get down on a good beauty podcast or beauty YouTube show. But it's really hard to find a guru that's relatable and that I can actually learn something from. But I found this podcast called Beauty Uncovered. And basically, each episode is just a casual interview with an expert in a certain area, whether that be beauty, health, wellness, or lifestyle. And I just find it really informative. And it's stuff you can actually apply to your real life, which I think is really cool. So subscribe now to the Beauty Uncovered podcast on Apple Pods or wherever you get your podcasts and get your weekly guide to uncovering your beauty. (laughs) All right. Things to share, things to feel, share and feel, feel and share. What you got? Oh, boy. Well, you know I love Wondery. Oh, what you listened to this week. I love it. <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that. Um, and someone got in the Wondery app. <laughs> 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 All that free content, baby. Neat. $5 a month. <laughs> so I thought I knew everything about this story, but 
I did not because I listened to the Mommy Doomsday podcast put out by Dateline, mm, mm-hmm. which I just found on Wondery. I actually don't know if it has to do with Wondery. I don't think it does. Um, and holy shit, the amount of people that died around those two people. Uh-huh. I had no, I just had no idea. I did not know. I was following it as the, they were looking for the kids, but I did not know all the of backstory. her backstory. Yeah. And about her older son and her husband's and everything. So it was so good. And of course, and those dulcet tones of Keith will really just. I know. <laughs> it's like coming you. home. Yes, it really is. <laughs> so I listened to that and it was so good. And hope, I mean, those poor kids, this is fucking awful. So I'm yeah. interested to see what happens in that case. Um, but also based on your, both of your recommendations, we are watching what we do in the shadows, which is just the best oh, show yes. of all time. Yay! Honey! Yay! <laughs> I love it. It is the absolute best. Yeah, it's so I good. I love it so much. We just finished the episode where, or a few episodes ago where, it, oh, what's his name? <laughs> Cole, Col- Colin Robinson. Colin, Colin Robinson. Robinson get some superpowers yes we just recently watched that one too (laughs) oh my gosh it's so good it's so fucking funny so i knew you would i never wanted to end i'm like i know i'll be so sad so sad when it's over (sighs) it's so sad and it takes so long for new seasons yeah gosh (laughs) and you can just tell they have so much fun making that show like what a delight yeah, it's a delay. It's great. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm it's so just happy. so different. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I love how spooky you're getting this season. I'm so proud. <laughs> I'm really trying to get spooky. That is not scary though. But uh, some no. of the things they'll they'll spook you out a little bit. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still I'm a ba- I'm a little baby. Okay, so I recently it's been like a while since I've jumped into the Netflix true crime stuff. Oh, and so I was just like random browsing. And I started watching. I have one episode left, and I'm dying that I haven't seen it yet because it's the last episode. Um, but it's called Elise Matsunaga Arase Una Vez Un Crimen, which translates to Once Upon a Crime. And it is a Brazilian story oh. that happened in 2012 where, and this is not a spoiler because they tell you from the beginning, Okay, a woman has murdered and dismembered her husband. And removed him from the building, and she gets caught. And so they, we yes. start knowing that, and then this woman is in the whole thing. Yes, interview the murderer. Mm-hmm. Very long personal interviews with this woman. Weird. And honey, you think you know what you think about her, and then you change your mind, and Oof. then you change your mind Ooh. again. Ooh. It is so wild. You oh, have my. to watch it. I saw that you were watching this because we share yes. a Netflix account. I mean, I should say I steal Carlin's Netflix account. And <laughs> um, you know how it'll do the thing now where it just like plays automatically if you cursor over whatever yeah. it says. So oh. I saw like an, a part of an interview with her and I was like, what is this that she's watching? We love an interview. Oh, my God. I don't want to give anything away, but. You're like, at first, you're like, how could someone kill and dismember their partner? 
And then you start feeling bad for her and you start thinking, wow, maybe, okay, I can see this happening. And it is pretty soon you're dismembering your own partner. And pretty soon (laughs) you've got suitcases full of feet and you just don't know what to do. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, I have one more episode, but it, oh my gosh, it's just, oh, I gotta watch it. It's a roller coaster. Exciting. I need, I need like time to, there's all these true crime documentaries that I want to watch and I got to like find the time to just like sit and watch like three in a row Mm -hmm. because there's so many that I want to watch that keep popping up. I know. And I'm not used to like not multitasking while I watch something, but it's all in Portuguese. But you have to. So you have to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't be on your phone. You can't be doing anything else. You just got to sit and read those subtitles. You got to pay attention to me. Yeah. It's so good. I have a podcast recommendation. It's called Queen of the Con, the Irish heiress. And you know, I love a con and I love a lady con. It's by iHeartRadio and AYR. So it's about this woman named Mayor Smith who befriends a reality television producer uh, named Jonathan Walton. They all live in the same apartment building in L.A. And she, she, you know, meets all of the people in the building at this, like, kind of building meeting with a group of people. And she has this story. She's this Irish heiress. Her great-grandfather helped found Ireland or some <laughs> – the Irish Constitution. All these, like, wild stories. But, you know, people – People would rather believe people than not believe people, I think. He, the the victim, this guy Jonathan Walton, ends up giving her a lot of money and he in turn becomes obsessed with her, like trying to like put her away and make sure she doesn't do this to anybody else. Hilarity ensues. Mm. So it's really good. And everybody in it is like in LA in this apartment building. And some of them are very much characters. <laughs> like there's there is one woman who is a practicing lawyer. And the way she speaks, I can't believe that she she must speak completely differently in a courtroom because I know that some of us on this podcast get accused of vocal frying. <laughs> and um, this woman talks like that. <laughs> and I can't imagine going in front of a judge and saying, this person like totally didn't do it. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I love her. Like, she's great. She's a character. She's super funny. She's really smart. But yeah, so it's just like LA, like industry people. One woman is like the manager of multiple strip clubs and she's got like all these dancers, yeah. yada, yada. But it's it's good. It's nice. worth a listen. So that's my Fun. Great. Yeah. All right. Do we have a review? Oh, yes. I think we do. <laughs> Shall I? Yeah. Okay. So this review comes to us from Sparkly75. If you used to watch Unsolved Mysteries and get an instant serotonin rush when Robert Stack would say, update, this is the podcast for you. Not only is it clever and hilarious, not gratuitously like the hosts don't overdo their hilarity, (laughs) but it is chock full. I mean, I think sometimes we do overdo our hilarity just because we think we're so funny, but... (laughs) Yeah, we think we're funny, but I don't think we outwardly overdo the hilarity at all. (laughs) Not about murder, just about ourselves being funny. But it is chock full of information and updates to current, the ultimate update 
Plus, it's fun to revisit the old episodes. Spend as much time listening as you can, including your missing time. Ooh. <laughs> cute. That's cute. We haven't talked about missing time in a while. No, we haven't. <laughs> I'm sure it's coming. We got to get another amnesia segment mm, going. No, that one was aliens, honey. Oh, right. Aliens. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Next episode, two-parter. Oh, yeah. We're doing it. We're doing it. First segment, Unexplained Death, Philip Frazier. Oh, second segment. It is a missing case, the crew of the Casey Nicole. Oh, boy. And then we have for part two, which will be out the following week, the Lost Loves case of Mac McDonald. And then we have a wanted case of William John Wood. All right. We love you, honeys. We love you so. We really do. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Go to patreon.com slash resolve mysteries podcast if you're interested in supporting us there. If you subscribe at the $5 a month level or higher, you're going to get ad-free episodes, two extra episodes a month, and other goodies in the mail. To see photos we reference in the episode, follow us on Instagram at resolve mysteries podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at resolve the pod. You can contact us at resolve mysteries podcast.com, resolve mysteries podcast at gmail.com, or at our P.O. Box, 14005, Portland, Oregon, 97293. Send us your stories for listener short stack episodes. If you want to email us your favorite unsolved mystery story or cold case or any nostalgia you have surrounding the show, send it our way because we love to hear from you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, leave a five-star review and tell a friend or tell two or tell three. Don't forget, for every review we receive, we donate a dollar to a different nonprofit. And Stack lays all this out. Sorry, my dog is scratching. Hold for scratching. He settled down. Frosted face. Stop it. (laughs) You frosted face. (laughs) Okay. So Stack lays all of this out. Oh, my God. (laughs) Can you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) That's why I started having to put a baby gate at the bottom of the stairs because mine were doing that too. If I don't have him in here, he'll just whine. No, it's fine. It's fine. Okay.